defines anyway. They may make some kind of commitment in a church service or, or, or through something like Alpha or Christianity Explored. They might pray a prayer and they might be genuine and sincere in that, but it's not really being born again. It's not really trusting in Jesus in the way that the Bible defines. See, the, the key to continuing to follow Jesus is found in how we start following him in the first place. If the foundation isn't right, then what is built on afterwards doesn't work. And in the passage of the Bible that we're looking at today, we're going to see how starting out properly, understanding what it really means to follow Jesus, will help us keep going and ensures that we do keep going. And the passage that we're looking at today is Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. It's part of a letter that Paul, one of the key early leaders of the church in the first century, he, he wrote to a place called Colossae, to a, to a church in a city in what is now modern-day Turkey, part of the Roman Empire in those days. So Paul is chained up in prison, he's writing this letter, and we're going to break into a bit of this letter, and we're going to read Colossians chapter 2 and verses 6 to 15. So if you've got a Bible and you want to pick it up and read it, and you can follow as I read it publicly, and you can just follow along and listen. If you haven't, that's fine, you can just listen to the words as we read them. So Paul, this is a letter from a guy in prison, one of the key leaders, he's in prison for telling other people about Jesus, and he's writing these words, and, and so we're kind of breaking in halfway through, or, or kind of mid-flow for Paul as he's writing. And we're going to read from verse 16. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul is writing to a group of people who have publicly professed their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. They've, they're part of a church, they've publicly stated, I've trusted in Jesus, they've been baptised, they've gone under the water, they've come back out again, That they've made this public statement, I have accepted Jesus. And so Paul says, in, in, in verse uh, 6, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul says, keep going in the way that you started. But how did they start? This is, where, this is really key. This is the fundamental this, to this whole concept, to this whole passage. Paul says they started, how did they start? They, re- they started when they received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now the word that's translated Lord is, is from a Greek word, Remember, the, the New Testament of the Bible is written in Greek, and it's a word which is kyrios, and kyrios literally means master or sir or owner, and of course Lord or, or chief, uh, the person who's in charge. And so Paul is saying, look, you have received Jesus as Lord, you have accepted Jesus into your life as the boss, as the commander, as the chief, as the person who's in charge of you, as the one you call sir, as the one that you call Lord. 
To receive Jesus as Lord is to surrender our lives to Jesus. And it's to make him our master. It's to make him our owner. He, he is now the one that's in charge. And the one that rules our life is the person to whom we've surrendered. Sometimes people come to church, they hear about Jesus and forgiveness of sins and eternal life that, that, that he offers and we sing about this and we, we pray about it and so on. And people might embrace those things because, yeah, I like that, I want that, that sounds great. I want all the guilt in my life got rid of. I, I want to go to heaven, of course I do. And they might make some kind of public commitment to, to trust in Jesus. But what they fail to realise is that those things only come when we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, as Master, as Owner, as the one whom we've surrendered our lives to. You know, the, Jesus didn't come primarily to save us from our sins. He did, and that's true, and he says that. But he came to make us into worshippers of God. He came to bring us back to restore us so that we were back facing the way that we should have been, which was created to live in a relationship with God. The byproduct of that is that we get saved from our sins and saved from a lost eternity, but primarily it's about restoring us into a relationship where God is our King and is our Lord and is in charge of our lives. And when we do that, when we, put, when we take ourselves off the throne of our life and surrender our life and put Jesus on the throne and give our lives completely to him and we humble ourselves... Then, as we repent, as we turn away from our old life, and as we embrace Jesus as Lord, then we get that forgiveness of sin, that eternal life, and that relationship with God, which we all long for, which people really want. But they only come through repentance. Repentance is about turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus. Not just embracing the good stuff, the kind of bit that attractive stuff, but actually embracing him and surrendering to him as our Lord. It means to say, I am no longer in charge. It means that we humble ourselves under Jesus and submit to him so that he is Lord. We, we often talk about Jesus being our saviour, but he can only be our saviour if we've actually made him our Lord. He can only be our saviour if we've made him our Lord. We get the blessings of salvation, of him being our saviour, saving us from sin when we surrender our lives, when we repent and turn to him. And that means that we not only turn away from our old way of living when we first put our faith and trust in Jesus, but it means that we continue to live that way. It's an ongoing state. We said two weeks ago, didn't we, that one of the marks of someone who is truly born again is somebody who lives in an ongoing state of repentance. So repentance isn't just a one-off thing we might have done 20 years ago or, or, or two weeks ago or whenever. It's an ongoing state that we live in. It means that we live in this ongoing state of when I become aware of my sin, when I become aware that I've done something which is displeasing to God, I sort it out. I don't live in a, in a state of unrepentance. It doesn't mean that we never sin, but it does mean that we, when we become aware of it, then we confess it to God and we turn away from it because we're continually seeking to live with Jesus as our Lord rather than as ourselves as our Lord and with sin effectively as our Lord. So here's a question for you this morning. I wonder if you have ever received Christ Jesus as Lord. Has there been a moment in your life when you surrendered to Jesus and made him your Lord and your Master. When you said, no longer me, I quit, I give up, I stop being in charge and I turn everything over to you, Lord Jesus, and you are now the boss, you are now the commander, you are now the general, you are now the king, you are now the Lord. I wonder if you've ever done that. Not have you asked Jesus to give you eternal life, that comes when we take ourselves off the throne of our life and place Jesus there. Have you received Jesus as Lord? 
Because if you haven't done that, then it's so important that you do that because the, the blessings of salvation which are there for us only come when we place Jesus on the throne of our life as Lord. It doesn't mean that we get everything sewn up. It doesn't mean that we, 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 we never sin again. Far from it. And we have that daily struggle and we're going to look at that today. But it, it's, it's a reorientation, a looking to Jesus instead of a looking to ourselves and looking to the past. And if you haven't done that, then can I encourage you to do that, to take that step? It's not about coming to church. It's not about reading your Bible. You can do all that. You can get baptized. You can, you can sing all the songs. All of those things are good stuff to do. But we need to surrender our lives to Jesus. It's not about having Christian parents. It's not about believing in Jesus. The, Jesus says, look, even the demons believe in God and they tremble. It's not about believing about God. It's about surrendering our lives to Jesus. And Paul says the key to continuing to follow Jesus is whether or not we've actually received him as Lord. If we have, then like the Christians in Colossae, write this down, we we need to go on making that daily choice to have Jesus as as our Lord. That is a daily choice we have because if we do that, that will then prevent us from going astray. And we're going to look at ways in which we can be led astray and and how this was happening in the church at Colossae. It's about making that initial choice to surrender to Jesus as Lord and then that ongoing daily choice which flows from that, which says, I will continue to live and and surrender to, to Jesus in this reorientation of my life and daily surrender to Jesus. And Paul talks about the need for our roots, a bit like a plant, going down, not into soil, but going down into Jesus, as if he's the kind of ground that we build our lives on, the rock, and into the Bible, so that what is flowing into us and feeding us and inspiring us and motivating us and and, and driving our thinking and behaviour and influencing how we think and behave, that it's Jesus and the Bible. Because there's all sorts of stuff that influences our thinking. We, as a family, we watched a movie last night, Fantastic movie, but oh, so sad, so depressing. It was amazing. It was about 9-11, about a young, fa- about a young boy whose dad dies. It was really heartrending. But we all went to bed. Oh, it was just, it, oh, it was just, it was awful. It was amazing, and I recommend it to you, but it was... Di- and the power of movies, the power of the media to utterly change your mood, to, ch- to influence how we think, how we behave. And books can do the same, and music does the same. And that's fine if it's a good thing, but so often, subtly, there's all sorts of wrong influences that we're feeding ourselves with. And so what happens is, if we're not careful, those things can push Jesus out of the central place in our life so that he's no longer Lord. And we begin taking our cues and our drivers and our motivation from other places. And we end up being driven by the world around us rather than by by Jesus. And the challenge for us is to choose each day to build on Jesus, to feed on Jesus, to be strengthened by Jesus so that we live each day, each moment for Jesus. Now one of the problems for the church in Colossae was that some people had come into the church and they'd begun teaching things that weren't true. Things that were wrong things. The Bible calls them false teachers. So Paul says in verse 8, continue in Jesus, keep submitting to Jesus, keep putting your roots down into Jesus and into his word, the Bible, taking your cues and your motivation and feeding on that rather than the stuff around you. And then see to it as a result that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world. Uh, Most translations put it, or more accurately, elemental spirits of the world, rather than on Christ. We'll come back and explain that in a minute. So see to it, Paul says, as as you're trying to continue to follow Jesus, see to it then that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, uh, which depends on human tradition 
and the elemental spirits of this world rather than on Christ. Paul was warning them, and he's warning us today, 2,000 years later, that though they'd received Christ Jesus as Lord, they had to be careful that they weren't going to get led astray into, into wrong worldviews or wrong ways of thinking. Mindsets that are built on deceptive philosophies, deceptive worldviews, and human traditions and so on. And these worldviews were wrong and they were contrary to what the Bible taught. And Paul is saying here that they are actually inspired by demonic powers. That's what he really means here, these elemental spirits of the world. The phrase in the NIV translation, basic principles of the world, is apparently, I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's apparently a really difficult Greek phrase to translate, but it literally means the basic spirits that exist in this world. So these worldviews came from these unclean, these, de- these demonic spirits, which the Bible says are, are working in hand in hand with Satan, part of the, the angels that fell with Satan when Satan rebelled against God uh, way back uh, before creation or, or at creation. And these worldviews, the deceptive thinking, these hollow philosophies have come and they're being inspired by demons, Paul is teaching. And demonically inspired as they were, these false teachers were teaching It's not entirely clear what they were saying, but they were teaching, it seems, that there was some kind of secondary level of full spiritual experience that people could get by obeying rules and regulations and or by having some kind of mystical Christian spiritual experience. And it seems as if what they were looking for was real spiritual fulfilment in victory over their sinful lives. They they trusted in Jesus, but they were aware that, you know, I'm still sinning, I'm still letting God down, and and, and I wish there was a magic cure to... Uh, to make that happen and so these false teachers were teaching well there is and we don't know exactly what they were teaching because Paul just kind of gives us some clues but it involved uh, treating the body harshly and going through all sorts of rules and regulations and Paul will look at that next week and probably also some kind of mystical uh, secondary experience that people could experience And, and these false teachers were telling them that if they did these certain things then they would be free from the power of sin and would stop sinning and Paul wants them and he wants us to know that that isn't true Because everything we actually need in general in life and everything we need to deal with sin is found in Jesus. We don't need to go looking elsewhere. We don't need to go looking in all sorts of other places in in life for fulfilment and for victory over sin. We find that in Jesus. Look at what he says in verses 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. Paul is saying, if you've received, and it's a big if, but if you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, then you have experienced and you've encountered God in all his fullness. Why? Because God lives in Jesus completely. Jesus is 100% God. In Christ, Paul says, the fullness of the deity, the fullness of God lives in bodily form. So if we've received Jesus as Lord, then we've received complete fullness in Jesus. There isn't anything more we can get. There isn't anything else we can receive. We already have it all. When we, when we encounter and experience Jesus, we're encountering God in his completeness, in his fullness. And, and Paul says, look, Jesus is head over all these various unseen spiritual forces, these unseen d- demonic forces that are inspiring these false teachings. And even though they've rebelled against God and against Jesus, Jesus is still head over them, Paul says, and he, and he has complete authority over them. So why go looking elsewhere when, when Jesus is God? Why would you even be thinking of going looking elsewhere for the solutions of life? Because in Jesus we find the solution for everything. And these Colossian Christians were being encouraged to mix in other worldviews and other religious practices to this simple biblical devotion to Jesus. 
a simple trust in Jesus as their Lord and as their Saviour. And Paul is saying, don't do that. If you've accepted Jesus as Lord, then you have encountered God in his fullness. Don't go looking elsewhere, because ultimately every other worldview and every other religious system is inspired and empowered by Satan and his demons. Now that's not a politically correct thing to say, but that is what the Bible teaches. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul is saying here, anything that teaches or leads us away from that simple truth about Jesus is actually coming from the unseen spiritual forces of this world. And we can find ourselves doing just the same. We, 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 We might think that we need to add to our faith in Jesus and experience some kind of mystical experience or and that somehow that will give us spiritual fulfilment, or that we need to somehow keep a list of rules and regulations. And Christians are great at adding loads of of rules and regulations to our lives. And yet the Bible says we're free from needing to do that. Somehow thinking that if if I just obey all these rules and regulations, then God will love me more than he already does. And Paul is saying we mustn't be fooled into thinking that spiritual fulfilment requires anything other than receiving Christ Jesus as Lord and continuing to live with him as Lord. So write this down. If I want to have spiritual fulfilment, then I need to receive Jesus as Saviour and as Lord and to continue to live in Jesus. I need to receive Jesus and I need to continue to live in Jesus. See, we go looking in all sorts of places for fulfilment. In the Colossian situation, it was some specific stuff that was being taught. We don't know exactly what was being taught because Paul doesn't go into details. But, you know, translating that into our situation today we can find ourselves doing exactly the same thing. We go looking in all sorts of other places. People do that in everyday life. They fill their lives with stuff like uh, alcohol. Nothing wrong with drinking alcohol, but when we get drunk and it becomes something that, that, that we live by, or with drugs, or by sex, or by power, our career, money, things some of which are good things, but can become uh, our master and can take over our life. People go looking for fulfilment in all sorts of stuff. If I just get this, then I'll find fulfilment. Jesus isn't enough. I need to have more. I need to have that bigger car, that bigger house. I need to get that promotion at work or whatever it might be. And people in general do that and that's why they go and fill their lives with all sorts of stuff and stuff ultimately that, that leaves us empty and we can have all of, the, all of these things and more and at the end of it, it all leaves us empty and broken. But even as followers of Jesus, we can be taken captive, we can be deceived, says Paul, by deceptive teaching that teaches, or or, or that just comes in and creeps into our mindset. That, you know, as well as trusting in Jesus, really, if I'm going to be really fulfilled, I need to have that thing. I need to have this thing. I need to have that, whatever it might be. And the gospel, the good news, the Bible teaches that we have fulfilment in Christ, because in Jesus we encounter God in all his fullness. And one of the great deceptions of our age is that there is something to add to this, and it can be found in all sorts of different expressions. And if only I have this, if only I experience that, then I'll be fulfilled. And Paul is saying, look, come back to the simple gospel, the simple good news, trust in Jesus, submit to him as Lord, experience God and encounter God in all his fullness. Now, part of what these false teachers seem to be saying was that the route to defeating sin 
and sinful temptations in life was through mystical experiences or, or, or through keeping special rules and regulations. They were trying to follow Jesus and they were appealing to them and saying, look, you know, the way to stop sinning, the way to, to uh, stop messing up and stop being tempted is to do this, that or the other. We're not quite sure what they were saying, but it certainly seems as if it was about these mystical experiences or, or keeping a, a list of harsh rules, treating their body really difficultly, not eating certain foods and crazy things like this. The key to defeating sin sin and sinful temptations is not through doing these things. It's through understanding what happened to us when we received Christ Jesus as Lord. The key for the person who has accepted Jesus as Lord, the key to the person who is trying to follow Jesus as Lord to defeating sin on an ongoing basis is not through keeping lists of rules and regulations. It's about understanding the truth, understanding our new identity in Jesus, understanding what actually happened to us when we trusted in Jesus. Look at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, or, or literally the flesh, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Now we're going to get into some really weighty biblical truths that are really mind-stretching and difficult to get our heads around. I'm going to do my best in the time we've got left to try and explain these. If I don't manage that, I'm sorry. Come and chat with me afterwards. We'll try and go into a bit more detail. I'm going to try and communicate what are really difficult concepts this morning. Okay? Hopefully, I'll be able to do that in a way that is understandable. What is Paul talking about? Circumcision. What is all of this about the flesh and sinful nature and a circumcision done by Jesus? What on earth is Paul all about? Well, in the Old Testament, to show that the Jews were God's people, the men had to be physically circumcised. And Paul, who was a Jew, who had been circumcised, that was his upbringing, he had been, he'd grown up as a Jew, and he'd been circumcised along with all other Jewish men, he realises, and he knows because Jesus has revealed it to him, that that was the old way of doing things, that that was no longer necessary. And Paul borrows that picture of circumcision to teach something new. He says, look, being part of God's people is no longer about, partly about having some kind of physical exterior sign of physical circumcision and the removal of physical flesh. Being part of God's people, says Paul, is about spiritual circumcision and the removal of spiritual flesh. Now, what does he mean? Well, if we've received Jesus as Lord then our spiritual flesh was removed by Jesus when we received him. What does that mean? What does spiritual flesh mean? Well, some translations you will find, if you use the New International Version, usually it refers to the sinful nature. And that's an, a, that's an attempt to try and convey what's behind this, this phrase. The Greek word literally means meat or body. And sometimes in the New Testament it's used to refer to our physical body, but most often it's used in a spiritual sense to refer to our old natural selves. Okay? So the term flesh in the Bible represents the ways that we used to live independently of God before we accepted Jesus. So when you read in the New Testament sinful nature, if you're using a New International Version, or other translations, the flesh, it's not talking about your physical flesh, it's, talk, it, it, it's a metaphor, it's a word picture that Paul is using and other New Testament writers are using to convey, to describe to how someone who hasn't trusted in Jesus lives independently of God. It's that kind of power that's at work within them. And he writes and he uses the same term to describe the fact that that's how Christians used to be. It refers how we used to think and live and it was and is opposed to God. The flesh, says Paul, is opposed to God. And that's why the Bible says that the follower of Jesus needs to renew their mind. We need to renew our minds and stop living in that old way. So this 
So using this word play on physical circumcision and then spiritual circumcision and physical and spiritual flesh, Paul says that the flesh, our old way of thinking and living before we trusted in Jesus, has been put off. It's literally been stripped off. He's borrowing all of these kind of pictures from physical circumcision and now he's applying it to a spiritual situation. And he says that took place, that that old way of behaving, that old force within you was stripped off and taken away when Jesus died on the cross. When we accepted Jesus as Lord, our old nature, the flesh, sometimes called, referred to the sinful nature, that was taken away. And we were given a new nature. We were given a, a, a spiritual nature because the Bible says when we trust in Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And the Bible says we're now partakers of the divine nature. We are linked eternally with God, spiritually, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, if we've accepted Jesus as Lord. So that flesh, that old life, it's as if it's been ripped off, cut off and removed, just like physical circumcision. So in spiritual circumcision, it's been taken away. And Paul says this happened when we accepted Jesus, when we were baptised. He's not saying that baptism is the means by which it happens, but he's he's speaking of baptism as a picture of what happened. Look what he says in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul's logic runs like this, okay? You've been spiritually circumcised if you've trusted in Jesus, if if you've accepted him as Lord. And this circumcision took place when you were buried with Christ and raised with him. And this burial and resurrection with Christ happened when you accepted Jesus and it symbolised by your baptism when you were baptised. So Paul isn't saying that baptism, the, the act of going down and underwater and coming back up again, he's not saying that that is what takes our old nature away. It's not, he's not saying that that is what saves us. It's receiving Jesus as Lord that does that. But it's always assumed in the Bible that the person who has received Jesus as Lord has been baptised by going down underwater and coming back out again of water. And so baptism is always linked hand in hand with receiving Jesus as Lord and it's often used as a kind of picture. So Paul sometimes doesn't even say when you were saved, he just says your baptism because baptism speaks of what's actually happened internally. And the idea in the New Testament that someone would receive Jesus as Lord and not get baptised would have been bizarre to those first, two Christi- those, first, those first Christians. The two things were, were and are inseparable. Paul is just simply and rightly assuming that all the Christians at Colossae had been baptised as soon as they'd become Christians. And so he could refer to baptism as if it was actually the same thing as receiving Jesus as Lord. It was a way, it was a symbol of acting out what had happened and that's what happens when we get baptised. It signifies that we've trusted in Jesus, that we've died to our old life as we go down under the water and we have buried our old life and as we come back out of the water, it's a symbol that we've begun a new life. And Paul is using that and he's saying that's what happened to you when you became a Christian. And when you became a Christian, Jesus stripped off that old nature. He took that old way uh, of living away from you and it's gone. And Paul says, when we were baptised... It's as if we were considered by God to have been in Christ when he died, was buried and rose again. And so what Jesus accomplished when that happened, when when Jesus was on the cross, the things that he accomplished, dealing with our sin forever, taking the punishment for our sin and conquering over death and sin and rising again, what Jesus accomplished there, Paul is saying, if we've trusted in Jesus, it's as if we were in Jesus when he was doing that. So what he has achieved now belongs to us because we were considered to be in Jesus, because we've linked ourselves with Jesus by accepting him as Lord and being baptised. And we get baptised partly to signify that. So 
So just as an aside this morning, if you've received Jesus as Lord, then you need to get baptised by being fully immersed in water going underneath and coming up. The New Testament clearly teaches that all who receive Jesus should be and must be baptised. But the key point here is that the person who's received Jesus as Lord, symbolised in baptism, has been spiritually circumcised. They've had their old existence removed and stripped off. The flesh, the old nature, that force within us that we used to be driven by, has been dealt with, Paul is saying. And for the person who's done that, that they've had a, a new nature given by the Holy Spirit coming to live within them. We have, we're, we're new people. Look at verses 13 and 14 to see how this happened. He says, when this happened when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, the flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code or, or, or the record of debt with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Before we received Jesus as Lord, the Bible teaches that we're physically alive but spiritually dead. We might look as if we're the most alive person on the planet, but as far as God sees us, if we haven't received Jesus as Lord, the Bible says we're considered dead by God, spiritually dead, physically alive, spiritually dead, and separated from God because of our sins and because of the flesh, because of our old nature, because of this power within us that drives us to sin, that's against God. But through Jesus, if we've accepted him as Lord, God has given us a new nature, spiritual life, life that's eternal, and he's forgiven us our sins. How has he done that? Well, Paul says here he's cancelled the written code, or what some translations call the record of debt that was against us. See, God is perfect, and he's completely righteous, and God is completely holy. And because of our sin, and because of our flesh, the, the old nature that is opposed to God, we are incapable of keeping God's righteous requirements. It's as if God has held up a list of what he requires for us to be able to have a relationship with him and to be able to go to heaven and be with him forever. And yet that list just shows all the times that we've failed to keep all the things that God requires of us. It's a list of the debts that I owe God, that you owe God, that we owe God. It's a list of all those times where we've messed up, where we've fallen short of God's perfection. God holds up a list and says, this is what you've got to do. And on that list, all it is is a mark of every time we've fallen short and we do every time because we're incapable of meeting that perfect, righteous requirement of God because God's holy. And because of the flesh and sin within us, we consistently fall short of God's standard. But Paul is saying here, look, God has taken that list, that list which was like a record of debt, doomed us and wrote us off and, and, and a horrendous kind of record of debt. God's taken it and he's, he's, he's wiped it clean. And he's forgiven us for all our failures to meet that righteous requirement. And he did that by taking that list away. It's not a real physical list, it's a picture that Paul is using. He did that by taking that list and, as it were, nailing it to the cross of Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus died there in your place and my place. God transferred all our shortcomings, our record of debt, that list of failure... And he transferred it onto Jesus. And as Jesus, who was perfect, died there in our place, he took the punishment for all those times, which is every time, by the way, that we have fallen short of that perfect requirement, that record of debt. God takes it from us and he gives it to Jesus. And Jesus there on the cross then takes the wrath of God for all those screw-ups and foul-ups and shortcomings. Every time that we've messed up, and that is every time, all of those shortcomings, even if we've just missed the mark by a little bit, and other times we'll have deliberately turned our back on God big time, 
and everything in between, all of those shortcomings given to Jesus. And Jesus takes the list and he puts it upon himself. And God the Father pours out his holy, righteous punishment, not on you, not on me, but on Jesus there on the cross. And because Jesus, God the Son, in whom all God's presence dwelt, because he took our punishment, God wiped the list clean. And he forgave us all the wrong things that we've done if we've accepted Christ as Lord. So if we've accepted Jesus as Lord this morning, then we have been made alive. We've been forgiven. Our debt to God has been paid by Jesus. It's a debt we couldn't pay. And Jesus has removed the flesh. He's he's stripped it away. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? Oh, how much God must have loved us to do that for us, to to, to strip away the flesh, to to deal with our record of debts, to wipe it clean, to nail it on Jesus' cross, to put it on Jesus. But the flesh, our old way of thinking and living, is even when we trust in Jesus, it's so deeply ingrained in us that we can still allow ourselves to live by the flesh rather than the way that God wants us to. We can choose to live the way we used to live, and this is where it comes every day. As we trust in Jesus, our sins are dealt with, but we still have the flesh as an enemy. It's so influenced us because it's how we've lived since we've been born, and our minds are programmed, and, just, and it's just an, our natural default setting. And so we have to renew our minds, Paul says. Daily renew our minds. And we have to make that choice to say, you know what, God has taken that away from me and I don't have to live that way anymore. I now have a choice. I didn't have a choice before. I was just ruled by the flesh, by the sinful nature. Now I'm not because Jesus has stripped it away. He's circumcised me spiritually. He's taken it away. It's gone. And I can make a choice. I can live the way of Jesus or I can live the way I used to live. And it's a daily choice that we have to make. So write this down. We need to live by our new identity that new identity that God has given us, and consider ourselves as dead. Paul says elsewhere, consider yourselves dead to sin. Count yourselves as dead. The flesh is dead. And he says you should count yourself because it's true. Our old life is finished with. It was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. The trouble is we often make that choice to go back there and revisit and relive and and allow that old nature to drive us and influence us rather than living by a new identity. And these false teachers that Paul was trying to combat were, were partly teaching that they could deal with the flesh, they could deal with the old nature by treating their bodies harshly or by keeping some list of harsh rules. And, and, and loads of religious organisations throughout the centuries, including many Christian ones, have, have fallen into that trap. You know, if I just beat myself up a little bit more or if I kind of flog myself or if I starve myself or if I do all these different kind of things then that will, that will get rid of these impulses I have in me and Paul says no that's not the way to do it we don't need to do that Jesus has dealt with that old flesh Jesus has dealt with the old way and no amount of keeping a list of harsh rules will make us right with God or make God love us all, more than he already does we're already right with God if we've received Jesus as Lord. God has made us alive. He's forgiven us all our debts. He's cancelled our debts. And he's done that through Jesus taking our sinfulness, that list of our debts, and putting it upon himself there on the cross. So if you've received Jesus as Lord this morning, then God now sees your old life as dead and buried. He sees you as forgiven and he sees you as, as having risen to a new life and as being as holy and as perfect as Jesus. And so we face that choice every day to live the old way or to live God's way. We can live by our new identity or by our old identity. And that choice is ours. God says that you are no longer a sinner. The New Testament nowhere defines Christians as sinners. Sinners are those who have yet to trust in Jesus. The New Testament always 
defines a Christian as a saint. That is our new identity. We are no longer sinners. We do still sometimes sin, but we are now sinners. We are saints who sometimes sin, and there is a world of difference. If we think of ourselves as sinners, what do sinners do? They sin. If we think of ourselves by our new identity, we're saints, holy ones, being made holy by the blood of Jesus, by what Jesus did on the cross. We're saints. And if we choose to make that new identity our driving force, that will transform our behaviour. We will still sometimes fail because we will sometimes choose the old way. But we need to make that daily choice. God sees me now as a saint. That is my new identity. I will live as a saint. There's the picture that I've used sometimes before of uh, the king in, who goes out into the streets and he's looking for a wife and he finds a woman who is living on the streets, living, uh, selling herself every night and he takes that woman and he says, leave that old life, clean yourself up, come and be my queen. And the, w- the woman, is, her old life is swept away and she's brought into the palace and she's made the queen and she's given a whole new life and clothes and her old life is finished and now she's the, she's the queen of the king. She's the wife of the king. So why on earth would the wife of the king want to go back on the streets and make her living on the streets, selling herself and begging and and, and so on? Why would she do that? Because her new identity is as a wife of the king. And that's how God sees us. The Bible uses another picture to describe us as the wife of Jesus. Jesus loves the church. The church is his bride. He's come and he's died and he's given himself for us. And he's given us a whole new identity. So why would we want to go back and live in the old identity when God has given us this whole new identity? So live like a saint and stop living like a sinner. Verse 15, Paul says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities are the way the Bible refers to these unseen demonic forces that, that work for Satan. And Paul says God has disarmed these powers. How has he done that? One, of the, one aspect of their power is their ability to accuse people of their wrongdoing and their guilt. One of the titles of Satan is the accuser. And Satan and the demons that work for him, that they tempt us to sin, and then when we sin, they kick us when we're down, and they whisper things like, call yourself a Christian? That's a terrible thing to do. You know, I would just stop going to church, because if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. Don't bother reading your Bible anymore, because you've just messed up. You ever had that experience? The temptation coming in from, from Satan and then when we do give in to that sin and then we're lying on the floor, Satan comes along and he kicks us on the floor and beats us up and we lie there and we're listening to all those accusing thoughts. But Paul says their ability to accuse us has been taken away because God has disarmed them on the cross and through the resurrection. When Jesus died, he transferred all those debts that were on that list onto himself and then he took the punishment for them. So for the person who's received Jesus as Lord, there's no longer any accusation. That's not an excuse to go and sin. But for the person who's received Jesus as Lord, there's no longer any accusation. We are free from being condemned. God has disarmed our accusers. They've got nothing left to fire at us. Colossians 1.22 says this, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and what? Free from accusation. We are free if we've trusted in Jesus, if we've accepted him as Lord. We're free from accusation. We're holy because Jesus has taken the punishment for all our shortfallings. And because he's dealt with our sin, those those demonic powers that love to whisper in our ears and accuse us and condemn us are now powerless. And the only power they have over us is the power that we give into them. So write that on your outline. If I've received Christ Jesus as Lord, I am free from accusation 
and free from condemnation. You are free this morning. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you've accepted him as Lord, you are free from accusation. Yes, you will still mess up, you will still sin. But the time, the response there is not to wallow in our sin, not to turn away from Jesus, but is to turn back to Jesus, to repent of that and give thanks. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've already dealt with that sin. Thank you that it was already nailed there on the cross. Thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I am free from any accusation in Jesus. So we have complete fullness in Jesus. We don't need to go looking anywhere else for spiritual fulfilment. We already have everything in and through Jesus. And if we can grasp our new identity in Christ, if we can understand what God has done for us in and through Jesus, then that will motivate us and it should spur us on to live for God. So we don't obey rules to try and get God to love us. Because God loves us, then we do the things that God wants us to do. And God's love for us, our new identity in Christ, this free gift that he's given to us in Jesus, should motivate us and spur us on to live for God, to live God's ways, and to continue following in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. What a wonderful saviour we have. It's in Christ that we have the fullness that we need, and every need we have in life, every need, Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that says, no, 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 but you need this, you need that, you need that. Everything we need in Christ is met in Christ. And so this morning, let's, as a prayer, let's stand and sing that great hymn, In Christ Alone. We're going to bring our service to a close by singing this hymn, In Christ Alone, my hope is found. It is in Jesus that we have everything. He is my light. He's my strength. He's my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. It's all in Christ. And so, as we're going to stand and sing, and and let's worship God. This morning, if you have yet to trust in Jesus, if you've yet to surrender your life to him and accept him as your Lord, then now is the opportunity to open your arms and just say, I surrender. Here I am, Lord Jesus. Be my Lord. And please save me, because I need your salvation. And if, perhaps, like most people here this morning... You've done that, but you need to continuously step forward and rejoice in the new identity that you have in Christ. Then worship God this morning, reach out to him this morning, and praise our wonderful Saviour who has done and given everything for us. Let's let's stand and worship God, and when this song is over, the service is over, but do come and chat with me afterwards. We'd be delighted to talk to you. Thank you.